0: Well, welcome back, everyone. I don't think I've ever been on a camp where we had jam, jam donuts. That was just terrific, wasn't it? it was, um, <clears throat> normally it's bought biscuits, so it's lovely. Um, okay, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the wonder of creation. We thank you for the beauty of the world in which we live, but we thank you that it is a mere taste of what is to come that you have prepared for us a heaven kept safe through the Lord Jesus Christ that will not perish or spoil or fade but which will be a reflection of your glory your character and it will be prepared for us to enjoy and we thank you so much for that we pray you would fix our eyes on heaven and make us men and women of Christian hope that we might live well in the the life that you have given us here on earth, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, If I'm honest, I'd have to say that Christian hope was a fairly meaningless concept to me right throughout my 20s. I believed in it. I believed in the Christian hope. I believed in the return of Jesus. But I believed in them in the way in which I believed in fresh vegetables and superannuation. Uh, I felt no real need for any of them. Now, during my 30s, all of that changed, Uh, vegetables and super as well, but but certainly in terms of Christian hope, and it began to hover more and more on my horizon. In fact, increasingly, Christian hope began to dominate my thinking. It happened firstly because people began to die, and uh, people close to me died. I mentioned my my best man who died at 40, uh, another friend who collapsed and died whilst pregnant with her fourth child. It happened because people began to die, and I began to realise that, 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 that death was a reality that I would be facing. But secondly, serving Jesus moved from being fun to being hard. Uh, I think that's almost inevitable for all Christian disciples. Uh, leading youth groups and Bible studies, transitioned into eldership. Uh, I began to pastor a church full-time. And serving Christ just got a whole lot harder. It made me weary with long days and late nights. Um, For the first time in my life, I discovered not everybody liked me. Uh, Sometimes they were quite harsh in their criticisms. The first time it happened, I remember sitting in my my study uh, with my Bible in front of me, ready to put God and everyone who had ever influenced me up to that point on trial. Why did I feel like I was dying on the inside? Why was Christian discipleship so demanding and at times distressing? Why did no one warn me that being a Christian in my 30s would be like this? Why was it that the suffering was so much harder because it seemed to me that nobody else noticed or appreciated how hard I was suffering? Now, I'm not just talking about full-time Christian ministry here. I think it's the the life of discipleship that all of us are called to. There's a reason why Jesus compared it to crucifixion, taking up your cross and following after me. Anyone who has put their hand to the plough of Christian discipleship, serving within the church, taking risks in evangelism, sacrifices at work, can identify with the challenges and struggles that it brings. And there are times, if we are honest, when all of us as disciples of Jesus, if we are taking that discipleship seriously, we will ask ourselves, why am I doing this? There will be that temptation to remove the hand from the plough and to say, I'll leave it for someone else. Once I'd finished sulking in my study, I decided I'd read 2 Corinthians in the hope that I might find something there where I might receive a little sympathy from the Apostle Paul. What I got was 2 Corinthians 4. And the first thing that Paul tells the church and us is that Christian discipleship is difficult. Uh, it shouldn't have surprised me at all. I had no reason to sulk and to say why wasn't I warned. I'd been warned, Plentiful number of times I'd been warned. Christian discipleship is difficult. It's clear from reading the first three chapters of 2 Corinthians that Paul has reason enough of anyone to lose heart in Christian discipleship. His experience, he says in chapter 1 verse 8, his experience in the province of Asia put him under great pressure, is how he describes it. There were some within the church in Corinth who were accusing Paul of being dishonest of being disingenuous about his travel plans, such that they were saying Paul can't be trusted. When he says yes, he means no. When he says no, he means yes. You just can't trust a word that Paul says. He's not a man of his word. That's chapter 1, verses 12 to 22. He's even, at the beginning of chapter 2, we discover, he's even been forced to write a letter to the church in Corinth that has caused much grief and tension within the church. And in chapter 3 we see that there have been such doubts placed upon the integrity of the Apostle that he's forced to defend himself by appealing to church members themselves as his living letters of recommendation. This is the church that the Apostle Paul founded. It's the church that he preached under the province of God into existence. These are men and women who came to Christ because Paul was prepared to go to Corinth. And yet is finding himself in chapters 1, 2 and 3 under a, having to def- defend himself against a barrage of criticism about the way he goes about his Christian discipleship. And chapter 4 opens with Paul addressing yet another criticism made of him by some in the church. Chapter 4 verses 1 to 6. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart, rather We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants. Accusations have been made, we can see from his defence. Accusations have been made that he is not preaching the word of God truthfully and faithfully. That his gospel is more disguised, veiled, in order to conceal Paul's deceit. Claims that he was more concerned with self-promotion, the ministry of Paul, than with God's glory. That he was shameful in his behaviour and not a man of integrity. And all of this from within a church into which he has poured so much of himself. And so he needs to say, we do not preach ourselves. Why? Because people are saying, all you do is preach yourself, Paul. We renounce secret and shameful ways. Why does he need to say that? Because people are saying, you'd use nothing but secret and shameful ways, Paul. And so he's forced to defend himself against those very people into whom he has poured so much devotion, made so many sacrifices for. And the effects of Paul's struggles are spelt out in verses 8 to 12. Notice that, verse 8, we are hard-pressed on every side. We are perplexed, persecuted, verse 9, struck down. There's nothing romanticised about Christian discipleship as far as the Apostle Paul's concerned. Whether it's the stone-throwing mob violence in Lystra or the perversion of justice at the hands of Felix, the Roman governor, the opposition of Alexander, the metal worker, or the disappointment in Demas who loved the world, the sexual immorality and the betrayal of trust in Corinth, the disagreement between co-workers in Philippi, the heresy in Colossae, the laziness in Thessalonica, Christian service, Christian discipleship for the Apostle Paul was difficult. He was having to juggle and deal with all of these issues. For us, it just may be the youth group. It may be as elders of the congregation. It may be our Bible study group or it may be the challenges of evangelism or it may simply be the the, the constant drag on our time that comes with being prepared to volunteer for Christian service within our church. Whatever it is, like Paul, we can say in verse 10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It's the reality of Christian discipleship. Death is at work in us, it seems. It's not like it's always like that. Don't let me paint such a grim picture that you're thinking, boy, it's not that bad for me. He's had a shocking few decades, hasn't he? It's not always like this. It's not that ministry is one one long nightmare. I mean, many of the times you will tell me this as well as, as, well as my own experience. Many of the times you come home from Bible study and you think, I can't believe that I get to do this. Or that you share the gospel with a friend. And you come home praising God for his glory and his wonder and for the privilege of being able to speak the gospel into someone's life. But suffering and sacrifice is an inevitable part of Christian discipleship. It's why we are warned by Jesus to count the cost before you put your hand to the plough. It can be hard at times persevering in serving Christ. Don't imagine that it gets easier as you get older. I don't think it does. In fact, as you get older, you are faced with a whole set of new temptations thinking, I've done enough. I'm old and need a rest. Perhaps the time is for me to step back. I've earned a break. The temptations are just different, but they are nonetheless real. And if you've ever looked at someone who's perhaps your peer, maybe at work, and you've looked at the life that they have and you've thought, my life doesn't look like that because I'm out at Bible study on Tuesday night. I'm at committee of management on Wednesday night. I've got youth group on Friday night and I've got church on Sunday night. My life doesn't look like their life. Well, no, it doesn't. Because you are a servant of Christ. Christian ministry, Christian discipleship is difficult. There's enormous joy. The psalmist is right when he says there's more joy along the path of your salvation than in any kind of wealth. That's true, isn't it? Enormous joy. The privilege of being involved in any form of Christian discipleship, but it's costly as well. There's sacrifice. And Paul is right when he says not only is Christian ministry difficult, but Christian workers, Christian disciples, are weak. Notice chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure. So that's the treasure of the gospel is what he's talking about. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not abandoned. But, but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Christian discipleship is hard, but Christian disciples are weak, like jars of clay. Uh, several years ago, Pauline and I were overseas for study leave, and uh, we were in Istanbul and we went to a restaurant to eat. Uh, we were sitting outdoors. Uh, The house specialty was a slow-cooked lamb stew. And we'd seen it being served at other tables, and that was why we decided to have it for ourselves. Uh, What they would do was that they would seal up the raw stew in a clay pot and put it into a hot oven where it would cook. And then it would come to the table with the waiter holding it, uh, piping hot but still unopened, so a sealed clay pot at which point the waiter with a flourish would take out a metal pole and would strike off the top of the pot and the stew would pour out onto the plate. It was sort of part table service, part floor show, but it looked magnificent. We thought, we'll have one of those each. As he came out with our dinner, the first one, he held the pot aloft, he struck it with his metal bar and the entire pot exploded. Didn't go where it was meant to go. It just exploded. Shattered into a thousand pieces. And as the pieces flew everywhere, the stew flew everywhere, we were getting lamb stew out of our hair for days afterwards. It just went everywhere. Because, you see, that's we found out later that that was an occupational hazard. It happens from time to time, they said. <laughs> Thanks. Could have told us earlier. But, you see, that's where it is. Jars of clay... Are just what they sound like. They're cheap and dispensable. They're easily broken, they're not always strong enough for the job. We are like jars of clay, says the apostle. Easily chipped, cracked, and even smashed. We're human. And the effects of opposition and heartache and disappointment and tiredness can be devastating. And Paul's wanting his readers to know that only a fool would suggest that we can sail through the life of a Christian disciple with the kind of oppositions that Paul has faced. We can't do it without it taking a heavy toll. And so verse 10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. We're experiencing something, some, some small taste of the suffering in the death That Jesus endured for our sakes we are experiencing that as we seek to be Christ in this situation in this church in this discipleship context in order to bring glory to him but it is precisely as we struggle as weak jars of clay in difficult discipleship it's precisely as we do that that the glory of God is evidenced It's precisely through our weakness that God is glorified. Notice how he writes in verse 15. Sorry, I'm in chapter 1. Chapter 4, verse 15. All of this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. You see, if, if, if any of us excelled at Christian discipleship, if we found it constantly to be nothing but a breeze, just a walk in the park, if everything that I touched as a Christian servant turned to gold because I was strong and capable and clearly in control. In other words, if I was more Wedgwood or Villeroy and Bosch than Clay, who would deserve the credit? Me. Who would be responsible for the success? Me. Who would possess the power to change lives? Me. But this jar of clay, this broken down body that wearies and aches, this mind that like a jar clay gets anxious and depressed, restless and self-pitying, When lives are changed, when people are converted, when churches are planted and the gospel is preached, who gets the credit? Not me, not you, not Paul. It is so evidently the work of God alone. And so the glory goes to him. Discipleship is difficult. We are weak. And so God receives the glory. So if, as Paul says, we are jars of clay, how do we keep going as Christian disciples? When I was back in my study having a good sulk, why did I persevere and come back out to continue to serve Christ when I wanted to give it all up? What keeps you going now and will sustain you in the years ahead as your lives become undoubtedly busier and more complicated than they now are, as the responsibilities hem you in, as your discipleship commitments perhaps grow, and I hope that they do, what will keep you going when Christian discipleship is difficult and you are weak? Well, chapter 4 opens and closes with the apostle insisting that he does not lose heart Notice that, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. And down in verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Now, he gives two reasons why he doesn't lose heart. The first one, in verse 1, is because Christian ministry is glorious. Christian discipleship and service is glorious. The service that Paul has which is in fact the source of so many of his hardships that he experiences, he says it is a ministry that is so glorious that it outweighs any of the sacrifices that I might make. If you go back into chapter 3, Paul talks a little bit about this ministry. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, we are ministers of a new covenant that brings life. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, It is a ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. He says it's a ministry that is so glorious, this ministry of the gospel of Jesus, it is so glorious that it makes the ministry of Moses and the Old Testament law, which itself was very glorious, so glorious that Moses had to shield his face, you remember, but he says this is a ministry that we have. It far outshines anything from the Old Testament. Any ministry that came through Moses, it's cast into the shadows compared to the wonder and the glory of telling people that Jesus has died for their sins. And so he concludes in chapter 3, verse 9, where he says, if the ministry that condemns people is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what, is, what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts. The gospel is the story of God's love. As we saw last hour of God's pursuit of a wayward creation, of God's rescue, his saving of sinners like you and me, not because we deserve it or have earned it, but from the riches of his mercy, the storehouse of his grace poured out upon us and at the cost of his own dear son who didn't count the glory of heaven something to be grasped, but emptied himself, poured himself out, became a servant and was obedient even to death on the cross. What an astonishing message. That is the Christian gospel. It is a glorious ministry to be able to talk to people about that gospel, to be able to serve people who have believed in that gospel, And so Paul opens chapter 4 by telling his readers that this ministry of God's mercy that's been given to him, this ministry of, 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 of proclaiming salvation through Jesus, is so glorious. He says, I don't lose heart. It's not easy. I'm weak, but I don't lose heart because what I'm doing, it is so good. It is so glorious to tell a watching world, a needy world, about the love of God for them. In fact, rather than doing what you might expect someone to do, distort the message so it doesn't offend, manipulate people so as to win their favour, deceive people so as to protect yourself, he says, I do none of those things. So, yes, it's been tough. I know there are accusations about me. They're personal, they're hurtful, but I don't lose heart because this gospel that I serve is glorious. I think we understand the idea of enduring pain because of the gain that it can bring. The woman in the pains of childbirth knows that the pain is worth it because the child to be born is so precious. The Christian life brings sacrifice for full-time workers like the Apostle Paul, but indeed for all of us. It's costly holding down a full-time job and still turning up to Bible study. It's hard speaking about our Christian faith at work when we know it may impact our career path. It's sacrificial serving in the music ministry or welcoming or as treasurer or as an elder or taking up time that you might have spent with family or hobbies and recreations in order to serve Christ. But how glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? John Calvin wrote... For Christ was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us, made a curse for our blessing, became sin offered for our righteousness, marred so that we may be fair, died for our life so that by him fury is made gentle, wrath is appeased, darkness turned into light, Fear reassured, despisal despised, debt cancelled, labour lightened, sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate, difficulty easy, disorder ordered, division united, ignominy ennobled, rebellion subjected, intimidation intimidated, ambush uncovered, assaults assailed, force forced back, combat combated. War warred against, vengeance avenged, torment tormented, damnation damned. The abbess sunk into the abyss, hell transfixed, death dead, mortality made immortal. In short, he says, wasn't very short, was it? But in short, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness, all misfortune. It's the gospel. Here is the gospel that we've believed. It's easy to lose sight of that, to get so caught up in the worries and stresses and struggles of juggling competing demands on us, dealing patiently with personalities when they clash graciously with people who let us down. It's easy to lose sight of just how marvellous it is to be a disciple of Jesus, to serve as a human channel for God's love and grace. That's the first reason we don't lose heart, Paul says. But the second reason, he says, we do not lose heart because Christian hope is real. Christian hope is real. Verses 16 to 18. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. And what is unseen, well, that's eternal. An eternal glory. The words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter now into my rest a heavenly banquet, and a renewed creation. We can get so caught up, can't we, in the comfort and the pleasures of this world that we give little thought to the next. We can fall into the trap of believing that our deepest yearnings can be met in the superficialities of lifestyle and experience, of wealth and power of comfort and security and marriage and children, independence and freedom. Like J.I. Packer says, we're a sluggish, earthbound lot. But Christian hope makes sacrifices in this life all the more worthwhile because we know that this life is not all that there is. We know that this life is but the precursor to the life to come. The hope of heaven sustains us in the face of Christian sacrifice because we know that one day we will enter into the glory that God has prepared for us, an eternal life that will take the sufferings of this life and diminish them so far down that they become infinitesimal compared to the all-surpassing glory to come. Ashley Cooper was the seventh Lord of Shaftesbury and he's famous for his work in 19th century industrialised Britain amongst the poor and the destitute. He was responsible for significant improvement advances in a number of British laws surrounding mental health, the reform of factories to protect the safety of labourers and to curtail the extensive exploitation of child labour. One writer has said of Lord Shaftesbury it was his acceptance of Christ's return that gave urgency to Lord Shaftesbury's support for social reforms. His daily prayer, every day, was come Lord Jesus. It was a Bible verse that he would write in Greek, for reasons that I've never understood, but he would write in Greek on the flap of every envelope in which he sent a letter. He was a Christian man who lived every day in the light of his Christian hope. And that fueled and drove him in his endeavours within 19th century Britain. That's the Apostle Paul. And it must be you and me. Otherwise, hard-pressed, Shaftesbury would have been oppressed and crushed. Being perplexed, he would have despaired. Being persecuted, he'd have felt abandoned. Being struck down, he would have been destroyed, but he didn't lose heart. And nor must we. Because all the afflictions that Paul summarises so graphically in verses 8 to 12 only matter, they only matter if this life is all that there is. But if heaven is real, and the resurrection of Jesus guarantees it to be so, then this life is the very worst it will ever be for those who are in Christ. And the work that we do in this life will have eternal significance. When our children were young, they went to preschool and... uh, uh, Each afternoon, one of us, Pauline and I, would go up and we would collect them from the preschool. You know what it's like when you go into preschool? It's just that smell of sort of children, urine, um, that whole thing. We would go there and we would collect our children and we would take them home. Uh, Woe betide us if we forgot their artwork. Uh, Their artwork was always pegged like uh, washing on a clothesline and uh, there were times when we would have all of the children buckled into the car seats and the one that we'd just collected from pre- from preschool would say where's my artwork and we had no choice but to unbuckle everybody take them back into the um into the preschool collect their work of art and order to come back it was that important now, I have to say that the only way we knew which side was up was because the teacher would sign the name of, the, of our child at the bottom and we knew that that must be the way up. They were in, like utterly incomprehensible works of art, I have to say. But they mattered enormously to our children. Why? Well, because they knew that we would look at them and we would hold it up and we would say, that is a terrific work of art that you've got there. I love the way you've drawn the um, cow? Dog, 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 the way you've drawn... The we, they, Our praise was so important. It's the only thing that gave meaning to our children as they did their artwork, to put it on the fridge, to acknowledge that it was there. That's why it's pointless, isn't it, to write an essay that no one's ever going to read? Who's ever written an essay that you know no one will ever mark? A waste of time, isn't it? Who would write a book? that no one will ever buy or read? Well, no one will. There's no point, is there? It is only when we know that what we do has significance, when we know that someone in the world to come will look upon our endeavours in this life and they will look at the, the, scrub, the scribblings and turn it up the right way and they'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Your stumbling efforts, well, they've been pleasing in my sight because you're my child and I love you dearly. And so our Christian hope gives significance to the way that we live today because God will see it. And as a loving father, he will gaze upon the the picture that is your life and your dabblings. And he'll put it on his fridge and he'll say, well done. We were um, at the optometrist a little while back, his Christian man, and um, Pauline asked him, brought out an old pair of sunglasses and asked him if um, it was a spare pair, asked if he'd mind tightening the screws. And so he grabbed his tools and he began to tighten the screws and then he started talking about heating and adjusting the frames And suddenly it was becoming a much bigger issue than Pauline ever intended it to be. And so she said, don't go to too much effort. They're only spare frames. And he stopped and he looked at her and he said, if Jesus was here asking me to address just his frames, wouldn't I give him the very best that I could do? Now, leaving aside whether Jesus is short-sighted, of course, his point was a good one. How I live today, I live in the light of eternity. The service that I invest in today, I'm investing in it for the Lord Jesus. And that's how this optometrist lived. Everything that he did, he did it as though for Jesus. How could he not, therefore, do, do the very best he could? You see, my actions and yours are not undertaken in a void, they're not done one day and forgotten the next. God sees, God treasures, God preserves. And God will examine the rough brushstrokes of our childlike service of him and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And therefore, when we hear those words, the sufferings and the struggles of this life, as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it will disappear like, like, like a breath of air because you will have a glorious hope that cannot perish, spoil or fade. There's much joy in Christian discipleship, but there are also times of deep sadness, times when we are wearied by sin and might weighed down by the costs and the sacrifices that we must make. Don't lose heart. Persevere. Because Christian discipleship is a glorious undertaking because we have the words of eternal life and heaven is a glorious certainty that far outweighs any momentary struggles we may endure today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we... We thank you for the gospel and we thank you for entrusting it to jars of clay like ourselves. Give us grace not to lose heart, but to persevere in our service of you, in our Christian discipleship, and in making the sacrifices that are needed to be made. Remind us that ministry is a glorious thing and heaven is real. In Jesus' name, amen.